Man, I'm enjoying this nice heat wave that is coming through the area. It's 98 degrees, I heard this morning. I mean, it just reminds me of Christmas time in Phoenix. This is just marvelous. I'm enjoying this very much. Well, 242 years ago, 33.6 miles away from where we're sitting right now in this very moment. Wealthy landowners in their zeal for a new nation risked their lives signing a document at Independence Hall in Philadelphia known as the Declaration of Independence. And this coming Wednesday is going to be, of course, the anniversary of that time where we rejoice that we were born within this country and these borders. And it's like that every four years at the Olympics, too, where Anytime that our country wins anything of any kind of significance and we hear our national anthem being played and especially when we see our flag being raised high above all the other flags that had competed, it just seems like something swells up in us as Americans where we cry national tears of, of, of pride and we rejoice that we was born in this country and in these borders. Or any time that we've ever been to a memorial service and the person who was deceased had served in our military. And a person who is wearing a full uniform walks up with, with the American flag and they hand it to the family as the taps is being played. And it just seems like any time that we are there at a service like that and we hear taps being played, even the man who never cries is weeping and he's moved. And this very profound reverence and gratitude sweeps over us because we realize that, that we was fortunate enough to be born within the borders of this nation. We live in the greatest nation in the world. And yet I'm not speaking about America. America is not the greatest nation in the world. The greatest nation on earth is not the United States of America. It's not. It never has been. And it never will be the greatest nation on earth. Now the greatest nation on earth is in America. And yet it's also in Brazil. It's also in communist Cuba. It's in Russia, in Iraq, and it's in Iraq, and it's in Afghanistan. Those who have ears with which to hear this morning, let them hear what the Holy Spirit says to the churches. In 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. In 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9, here's what the, here's what the Apostle Peter says to the church and to a group of Christians. He says in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, starting in verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. And then he says that you are a holy nation. Amen. You are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. For one time you once were not a people, but now, because of him, now you are a people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. And then he challenges them and he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers upon the earth to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them. Glorify God in the day of visitation. That right there is the greatest nation on the face of this earth. It is the church of Jesus Christ. It is the church universal. It is Christ's kingdom upon this earth. Jesus' holy nation. Now as Americans, we, we love the red, white, and the blue. We absolutely love it with all of our hearts, and rightfully so. There is a very strong elegance to our patriotism. And yet, just like anything else, let us be patriotic. And yet, also let us be very cautious. And that's because, as wonderful as it is, patriotism, love for country, if we're not careful, that can spiral out of control. Many years ago, Amanda and I were at a church in another place. And there was a visitor who had come in on a weekday afternoon. And he had some weight in the community as far as his political affiliation was concerned. He was in a political party in town. And he walked inside our sanctuary at this church and he said, You have a very nice sanctuary, but why don't you have an American flag up there on the stage? And I just kind of smirked because I thought he was joking. But the guy was dead serious. He said, why is it that your church does not have a flag up here? Your church should recite the Pledge of Allegiance every single time just before you begin your worship service. And then he said something that made my jaw hit the floor. He said that any church that subscribes to the ideal ideology of Jesus Christ. It ought to be a good old Republican church. <laughs> and I didn't really know what to say. But I just felt very much not at ease because that statement that I just quoted, what the implications of that statement are is that if you're not a Republican, then you're not really a Christian. What that says is that whether he meant it that way or not, is that, is that a Republican is just another word for a Christian. And that an Independent and a Democrat is an oxymoron for what a Christian is. That is a problem. You see, our patriotism can, can very quickly spiral out of control. I have a very close friend who is also a minister out west. And at the time, he was in West Texas, which, if you haven't been there, extremely, extremely nationalistic. Good ways and bad ways. And yet, he had written an article during the Obama administration. And in our text here in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, he had pointed to a verse, in verse 17, where it says, Honor the King. 
And he wrote an article in their bulletin about how, how Michelle Obama had been booed at a NASCAR event and how many people at this church were like, yes, we need to boo the Obamas every chance that we get. And his whole article was expressing this, that an inspired writer of scripture who was writing to Christians who were living, by the way, under the regime of a homosexual Roman emperor who was, who was setting Christians on fire outside his version of the White House, who would put not just the Apostle Paul to death, but also the Apostle Peter himself as he writes these words to death. Peter is writing about this regime, and he says, submit to that regime. And he's saying to honor that king in the same way that we are also told to honor our father and our mother. And, you know, he just wrote this article in a way that had really humanized the Obamas. And said, wait a minute, this is our leader who's been appointed to this nation. Let's treat him like a human being at the very least. And I mean, there were people in that church who wanted my friend's blood. They went to the elders and said, you got to do something about this guy because he's not speaking the truth. And yet, last time I checked, what he was saying was in the Word of God. Our patriotism can spiral out of control. Just last week in Dallas, at a First Baptist church, there was what was referred to as a patriotic worship service. And I've never been that kind of preacher who speaks out against other churches because let's face it, we've got enough of our own issues that we need to deal with. And yet I heard about this worship assembly on a Sunday morning. And I watched it online. I watched the, the whole entire service. And they sing two Christian songs about Jesus. What 99% of the rest of their, their songs were is this land is your land, this land is my land. It was the Star Spangled Banner, songs that we love. And then they took many minutes of time and they brought up all of the branches of the government and played each of those anthems in succession, one after the other. And I mean... I absolutely loved all of the trumpets and flutes and pianos. It was beautiful. It was happy. It was, it was so, you know, just very much a happy time. And it was patriotic. And yet it also had absolutely nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Where there are a thousand flags waving inside this auditorium. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the... And I mean, it looked like a national convention at election time. And as I watched this, it just swept over me that, that this is not a Christian worship service. This is a political rally. And when another name is being praised above the name of Christ in his own service, I think that has a name. And that name is idolatry. I spoke with, with, with a brother in the area who had, had this observation. He says that, that in this culture, in the church, gun ownership has become its own religion. That the First Amendment has really become the American Eleventh Commandment. As my friend experienced, once, once in a church service, I said that the kingdom of heaven is the greatest nation on earth. 
It's greater than the nation even of America. And I mean, there were people waiting for me in the parking lot. How dare you say that, David? America is the greatest. Even greater than heaven. Really? I've had a man in the church who had pulled me aside and had reprimanded me. I mean, reprimanded me because I wasn't driving an American-made car. I mean, it was as if I had sinned in some egregious way. Our patriotism is a good thing, but we have to be sober with it because it can so easily spiral out of control. And one writer, he expresses it like this. Very often, more times than not, what Christians call their patriotism is what God happens to call idolatry. See, because the way that Satan loves to operate is that he loves to use distractions that will cause division. And is there anything under the face of this earth in the church that has caused more distractions and divisions than that of American, you know, our patriotism and politics? You see, it's possible to be so immersed and so consumed in political parties that we can take the American flag, as wonderful as it is, and the national anthem, and concoct it into a golden calf, and make it into a bronze serpent, and genuflect before it as our master and as our God. Amen. And look to that bronze serpent, or to that golden calf, for our happiness, and rely upon it for our identity and life. As the stock market crashed in 1929, there were people who were leaping out of windows of, of New York City high-rises, plummeting all the way down unto their death. You see, that's what happens when their source of life had crashed at Wall Street. And their reliance in, in life itself had just failed them. And I believe that as the American church, we can do this with our nationalism if we're not careful. But regardless, if if we are serving America, money, whatever it might be, whatever it is where if we were to actually lose that thing tomorrow, if we would feel as if life itself was completely over and that our happiness was gone forever, guess what? We just found our idol. If there's something that, that we look to for our exclusive sense of who we are in the world, more times than not, we just found what our idol is. We just found our God. And I mean, when we look in Scripture, this really is what we find the Israelites doing as Jesus comes. When, when the love for country becomes so great that, that one begins looking at their own country as the only ones that God cares about in the world, and that they are superior to all other individuals out in the world. And we see this in John chapter 8 among many places. Their Messiah is standing right in front of them and he's trying to explain you know, is there anybody who wants to be set free? Here's how you can be set free. And yet their response to this they rebuke Jesus and they say that, that we are children of Abraham. We don't need to be set free by you because, after all, we have never been enslaved to anybody in our lives. 
And if you know anything about the Hebrew race, I mean, that is laughably, I mean, just laugh out loud ridiculous. Because all that Israel is known for is slavery. 430 years of Egyptian bondage. They were destroyed by the Chaldeans in 586 BC. At this very time, they're occupied by Rome. And they're enslaved to them. I mean, the very narrative of their existence as a nation is predicated upon slavery and oppression. And yet, in their nationalistic minds, we have never been enslaved to anybody in our entire lives. That is the delusions of nationalism. And when Jesus came into this world speaking about his coming kingdom, it seems like all the Israelites cared about was, let's make Jerusalem great again. They wanted to make Jesus their king, but, but only make Jesus just their king. Only in a way that is making Jesus an earthly king who would sit upon an earthly throne. And yet, that is not the kind of rule that Jesus had in mind. As Jesus is being tempted by Satan out in the wilderness, we remember this. Satan has him up on a very high hill and he shows him all of the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor. Jesus, I will give you all of these kingdoms. You just have to worship. And yet that was not the kind of kingdom that Jesus had in mind. I think about when Jesus is trying to explain really to his followers that I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified on the cross. I'm going to rise up on the third day and where their minds are, though, is Jesus in your kingdom. I want you to grant one of my sons that they might sit on your left and the other that they might sit on your right side. And yet that's not the kind of, of kingdom or nation that Jesus has in mind. Now Jesus has risen up from the grave. He is just like 20 seconds away from ascending to the Father's right hand. And the last question that the apostles asked Jesus on earth, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And yet that's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus had in mind. It seems like the only one who understands what his kingdom was, was of all people a thief who was dying with him on the cross. Where he said, Lord Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. That guy gets it. Seems like all the rest do not. And yet, as for us, though, we really need to really discover just what we are in Jesus Christ. Now, a moment ago, I mentioned John chapter 8. And I just want to remind us of exactly what is at play in their words. Notice how the Jews do not say that we are children of God. But rather what they're saying is, we are children of Abraham. It was all about us being Israelites, rather than being children of God. And if we're honest, sometimes in the American church, we might not be expressing it out loud in our words, but really in our hearts, in our thoughts. Maybe we don't always think of ourselves as Christians, but rather what we identify ourselves with is Americans. And at times, it goes much further than that, because it's not just that, that we're Americans, but we're Democrat Americans. 
We are Republican Americans. We are Independent Party Americans. And yet none of those words is a synonym for Christian. And yet it's so interesting. And that's because one of the, the real synonyms for the word Christian Scripture, it is one of the most controversial words in our culture. Alien. You know, the alien, whether they are illegal or legal, has become the American version of a Samaritan or of a Gentile, as it was in the Jewish world. I mean, there, there are many Christians who look at illegal aliens or legal aliens as, as animals. And yet, as we see in verse 11 in our text, what does Peter say to these Christians? He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens. See, another word for Christian is alien, foreigner, migrant, journeyer, wayfaring stranger. If you are a Christian, you see, to be a Christian is to be an illegal alien. That's because in this world, we are living a lifestyle for, for a king that this world does not accept. And they look on that so often with contempt. Brothers and sisters, we are illegal aliens living in this world for Jesus. And yet there is another word for us that so often it does not come to our minds. It's found in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3. Really, I want us to hear what the Apostle Paul um, says in identification of the church. Now he points all the way back to Abraham, how, how this church really starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. As God says that, that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through your name, Abraham. In chapter 3, really he brings it all together. He connects Abraham to the cross. And he says, chapter 3 and verse 6, he says, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. What he's saying here is that even if you are a Gentile Christian, you are a child of Abraham. You are a Jew by association of the blood of Jesus Christ. And he goes on and he explains that the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that's us, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying that in you all the nations will be blessed in you. And so then those who are of faith, that's us, are blessed with Abraham who was the believer. And so it's not so much really that we are Americans. I mean, we live in America. We will die in America. But this is not our home. We are just migrants. We are just aliens. We are just wandering Jews who are journeying to our true home, where our true, where our residency lies. And that is in heaven. Now in Scripture, there is a sense in which God's kingdom is in the future tense, about how he says that he will welcome all of those into his kingdom, Enter into the joy of your Lord. God is speaking about heaven. 
And yet there is this other sense in Scripture that speaks about the kingdom of God being here right now. Really how in the book of Revelation it says that, that He has made us, the church, His kingdom, a priest. His kingdom is already here right now. And so it, it really begs the question, how can a citizen of heaven, how can a Christian live and coexist in a political landscape such as America? Really, it's the same way that Abraham existed among those Canaanites. It's the sense in which those Hebrew slaves lived in Egypt all those years. It's the sense in which those, those Jewish exiles lived in Babylon in the mid-500s. It's the way in which first century Jews and Christians lived under Roman occupation. What Jesus is accomplishing in his kingdom is that he is bringing his kingdom down into earth. And he's doing it by our words and our lifestyles as we emulate his. You see, the reason why I call God's kingdom the greatest nation on the face of the earth is because this nation transcends land and sea. It is greater than state lines and national borders. It is greater than skin pigmentation and human ethnicity. Amen. This nation comprised of disciples, Jesus says, of all of the nations. What does this mean? It means that when Jesus went to the cross of Calvary, he, he died for American blood. Praise God for that. And yet Jesus Christ also died for Iraqi blood. Jesus died for Mexican blood. He died for North Korean blood. And there is at least one Christian in all of those countries, I believe, this morning. You see, I love this specific king because this king does not build walls. But this is a king who demolishes walls. Walls of hostility. Walls of tribal thinking. You know, as human beings, we're just so good at drawing lines in the sand, aren't we? We've got the whites over here, we've got the blacks over here on the other side of the railroad tracks. In the first century, we got the Jews, we got the Samaritans, we got the Gentiles, we got the Jews. In our world today, it's, it's us white people and them Mexicans. I hear that all the time from Christians. It's us, and on the other end of that wall, it's them. And you can't be coming over here where we are in the kingdom of heaven. And yet that is perhaps the greatest problem of them all. And you see, if we don't like who the real Jesus loves and welcomes into his kingdom, we will fashion another Jesus in our likeness. It will be one that agrees with all of our, with all of our political persuasions. It will be one that only loves and accepts people who look just like us. It's going to be one that will justify racism, homophobia, xenophobia. And what we do, if we're not careful, is, is we can take the real Jesus, and we can Americanize that Jesus. And we can take the gospel, and we can give the world an Americanized, watered-down, a diluted gospel. Our precious little darling Republican Jesus, or a Democrat Jesus, or, or whatever it might be, but the problem is that's not who Jesus is. 
That is not the kingdom of heaven. This is a, a kingdom where the doors swing wide open for anybody who is willing to step inside of it. We hear it in the words of the Apostle Peter as he says that, that I now understand that God is not one to show a spirit of partiality. But rather in every place the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome into his kingdom. And I just rejoice that with all the problems that we have in this world, there, there aren't going to be any gun violence in heaven. There's not going to be any white supremacy or segregation in the kingdom of heaven. There's not going to be any color, any gender, any poor, but rather everybody is going to be one. And everybody is going to be opulent in the kingdom of heaven. I, I was... Um, Amaze read, um, as I read this in Scripture, also about Abraham. How in Hebrews chapter 11, it speaks about Abraham, Sarah, others like that, Noah. And it says that all of these died in faith without receiving what was promised to them. They were strangers to it, and they were exiles on the earth. And yet then he goes on and he says, that as it is, they desired a far better country, one that is heavenly, and so therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For God has prepared a city for them. And that city is called heaven, yes. And yet that city is also known as God's holy nation. Christ's church. And you know, this is the greatest nation because it also transcends time itself. Now how many administrations have we seen in our lifetime, in America alone? And how many nations have we seen rise only to fall sometime later? And yet you and I, and all Christians across this earth, we are a part of a nation that has a king. And this is the exact same king who was reigning 2,000 years ago. I mean, it just gives me chills. We hear it long ago in the words of Isaiah the prophet that, that for, for to us a child will be born to us. And there is not going to be any end to the increase of his government. It's what the angel said to Mary just before Jesus was born. There will be no end to his kingdom. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't have to campaign as Messiah every four years? I just love that so much. see, what this means is that when George Washington stood and he held up his hand and he was taking his oath of office, King Jesus was there. When Abraham Lincoln had been assassinated at Ford's Theater, King Jesus was reigning that night. Every single president who has ever served this country now, mostly who are skeletons and dust, could not stand the test of time. And yet, that's not the case with Jesus. We assassinated Jesus, and yet that, even death itself, could not conquer him. But Jesus rose up from the grave, and he is reigning at this very moment in time. As it says in Psalm, that it says that the grass withers and the flower fades, and yet the word of God is going to stand forevermore. As we sing sometimes, kings and kingdoms will all pass away. Well, except for one king and one kingdom 
Christ's holy nation. And last of all this morning, this, this is the greatest nation because this is a country that is invulnerable to enemy attack. Now there are people in this room who remember waking up on the day that Pearl Harbor had been bombed. And they saw America shaking. Everybody in this room remembers 9-11. Again, this country had been shaken upside down. And yet I love this holy nation above all other nations because as, as it says in the book of Hebrews, this is a nation that cannot and will not ever be shaken by man. What this means is that when, when JFK was assassinated in Dallas, Texas, there was a king who was still reigning in heaven over his church. He was there throughout World War I and World War II, the Vietnam War. He was there through it all. And I don't care how many atomic bombs, smart bombs, tanks, and ballistic missiles that this world has put together as one. It's not going to shake Christ's kingdom. Amen. As God looks at all of these ballistic missiles and atomic bombs, he sees toys. It will not shake heaven. Some trust in chariots, writes the Psalms. Others trust in horses. And yet we who trust in God, we trust in his name above all other things upon the face of this earth. He's not going to let you down in his kingdom. And I read this really good, good quote last week by John Mark Hicks. He says that to live in the shadows of the second coming means that we believe that there is more power in the prayers of Christian women in their golden years than any decision made by a U.S. president, by the U.S. Congress, or the United Nations. And we have another minister named Richard Rogers who, who said this many years ago. He said that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. What does that mean to us? What that means is that we can announce to any king on earth that he doesn't have a right to tell the church where the army of God can fight Satan. You believe that? I mean, do you really believe that no king or kingdom on earth can tell the church and can prevent us from fighting in every country that is opposed to him. He said that the only thing that can keep the army of God from fighting in every city of this earth is a lack of faith in the army. Because Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He cancels an edict he does not like. He overcomes and overthrows any law or decree of man that would hinder the outcome or the overflow of the gospel of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we need to realize that Jesus is the King of Kings. Amen. And that Jesus is the Lord of Lords. We often sing the song, This World is Not My Home. I have sung that song my whole life. My, my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue, and, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. I mean, is that how we really feel when we sing songs like that? I mean, do we truly sing a song like that, knowing in our heart of hearts that there is a kingdom that is far greater than even America? 
A song that denounces all dependence and attachment to any kingdom upon the face of this land. And it designates only heaven and Christ's nation as home. A song that proclaims that the American flag, as beautiful as it is, will not be the banner of heaven. A song that announces that our star-spangled banner, as beautiful as it is, will not be the anthem in the kingdom of heaven. Amen. But rather, its one and only anthem is this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty. Mm -hmm. It's a Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be both praise and blessing, glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So as we bring this to a close this morning, I just want to ask a few questions that will challenge us. Ask ourselves, which kingdom am I more excited to be involved in? Is it in the nation of America? Or is it in the nation of Christ? So ask ourselves if the church had the identical amount of excitement and devotion for the gospel as it did for, for their interest in politics, then what would that church look like? To ask ourselves if someone in view of me were to curse the name of Jesus and to blast his name in front of a small child, and if another person were to light the American flag on fire, which one would I feel the most indignation towards? If I could only rise to just one of those situations, which one would it be? And how long would it take me to make my decision? And then, which song would I be more excited and eager to um, sing with tears of pride? Would it be the Star Spangled Band? Or would it be this world is not my home? My brothers and sisters, if you are a Democrat, God loves you. And, don't, and doggone so do I. If you are a Republican, God loves you. And so do I. If you are independent, God loves you. And so do I. I mean, let's praise God that we are Americans. Let's have the cookout of our lives on Wednesday and sing our, our songs of patriotism with all of our hearts. Let's have gratitude for all of those people who risked their lives and who lost them for our freedoms. And yet, as we do all of these necessary things, let us also remember that this world is not our home. So we should not become too attached to it. That as long as we are living down here, we are strangers. We are illegal aliens. We are Hebrew Jews who are wandering to, to that one land where our residency lies as citizens. As we stand before God in judgment, He will not care what patriotic Americans we were in this life. He will not care who embraced the Democratic donkey. He will not care who embraced the Republican elephant. He will not care who embraced the eagle of America. The only thing that will matter when this world is on fire is who embraced the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.